Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So this week is a very, very, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed with this guest. Uh, one of my favorite people on social media and one of my favorite people in the industry. And it's one of the go-to people for anything, anything to do with good health. And there's more and more questions kind of coming in regarding IBS. Um, lactose intolerance kind of coming in so I thought it would be better to get someone who is a leader in the industry to come on and talk about it uh, rather than me kind of going off kind of the, the information that I have from being a nutritionist I'd rather get someone to kind of talk about that is it is their it is their go-to subject so this week I am very very lucky to have uh, Dr. Fundaro um, on the podcast uh, Dr. Fundaro combines her knowledge of nutrition and motivational interviewing techniques to promote intrinsic motivation, behavior change in clients to facilitate long-term weight management and healthy lifestyles. Uh, Dr. Fundaro is an industry leader and has been on so many podcasts. I've listened to a lot of them, uh, including like the ones like Revive Stronger, which is, I think, the first one that I've I heard yourself on. So it's Dr. Fundaro, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much. That was such a kind introduction and it's it's so funny to hear things like that because I'm like, really? Is that, what, is that what you think? I you No, know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful. That is um, really kind and um, yeah, the, the Revive Stronger, um, actually that was my first podcast. So I've done, I think, maybe three of them now with Steve, but yeah, Steve was my first podcast all the way back in 2018. So forever grateful and, and indebted to him for that. Yeah, the, those guys are awesome. I was over with those guys, I think it was last year. I think Steve and AJ had a seminar. So I was lucky enough to meet the guys, absolute gentlemen. Um, so very, very lucky to meet the guys. So for anyone that doesn't know your background, um, tell us your story and how you got into this this whole field. Um, it's sort of an interesting uh, and convoluted tale. So when I started my PhD, um, I was in a skeletal muscle phys and biochem lab. And so I wanted to study skeletal muscle metabolism. And I started on a project looking at high fat feeding and how it might um, impede a skeletal muscle hypertrophy or even cause sarcopenia, muscle loss. And um, I had that project going and I was helping a lot with the animal models that we were using and with these animal studies we were injecting them with an endotoxin called LPS or lipopolysaccharide and I was curious as to the mechanism, you know, why were we using this of all things um, because this is what created this uh, inflammatory cascade in these models and come to find out that LPS comes from specific bacteria in the gut and I was like, well, why aren't we looking in the gut? Like, shouldn't we be getting to the source? And, and my my PI was a little bit hesitant to have me do anything in the gut because that just wasn't our area. Um, but lo and behold, some months later, a probiotic grant came through um, and we received funding to do that study. And so it was sort of my side project. But because of some ins- because of uh, some some accidents with <laughs> my uh, initial project, we lost a bunch of samples, and so the side project looking at probiotics then became my main project. And so um, I spent the majority of my PhD studying the effects of probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding, and it was really more of a means to an end. I was really passionate about teaching, and I did graduate certificates and fellowships in teaching and learning and was very interested in you know how to improve like motivation in students and um, I think the the desire for like the type of relationship that I wanted to have with the students was more of a coaching type of relationship and when I got into higher ed it really didn't pan out that way and so 
Um, I was, you know, super gung-ho to be a professor and was like, okay, I don't really plan to do anything with a gut microbiome or anything like that. I just, you know, wanted to kind of finish and, and publish and get out into academia. So four years into my academic career, um, I was... I was a member of the, I still am a member of the ISSN, and I was posting in the Facebook group, kind of debating something. And Mike Isratel reached out to me, I guess, after seeing some of the content that I was putting out. He liked my approach. And then um, he and Nick and I discussed me coming on to RP as uh, an RP coach. And so I did that. And um, that was, so I finished out my fourth year of teaching doing both of those things, and it was very difficult to do both as well as I wanted to, and I realized after a year of teaching and coaching that I was more fulfilled by and more passionate about coaching, and so I went into RP full-time, and that was the point at which we, we realized that, you know, quote-unquote gut health was becoming a really prominent uh, topic of conversation, and lo and behold, I mean, that was what I did my my doctoral research in. So, uh, you know, Mike really encouraged me to, to speak about it and be, uh, an evidence-based voice in a field that was really rife with misinformation. And so I left academia, went into coaching full time. Um, and then less than a year after that, I started my own business. So I also do telehealth, um, coaching and consulting, which really started as sort of, you know, helping people who had some GI, uh, issues. And that has really, taken a different shape and a different direction because I found that the clientele that are seeking me out uh, are are individuals who might not um, want to use, you know, a template style uh, a nutritional approach full time and instead, you know, want to work on, on different forms of behavior change. So I'm able to serve kind of two different um, niche groups uh, through RP and then through my own business and that's where I am today. And I, I speak a lot about um, the gut microbiome and gut health. And there's two sort of separate topics, but with a lot of overlap. And um, yeah, so that's me. Big t- <coughs> Excuse me, you're up there with the big hitters with Mike and Nick there. So for any listeners who don't know who the guys are, they're like two of the godfathers of the industry. So you're in with the big hitters there. Um, so you mentioned kind of probiotics and prebiotics. And this is a question that mm-hmm. kind of comes in a lot. And it's there's a lot of a lot of information about it um, out yep. there. Um, is there like first of all, what is a probiotic and what's a prebiotic? What's the difference, mm-hmm. and is there any benefit in taking any of them? Yeah, so I'll start with prebiotics because they're a little bit easier to, to talk about and define. So a prebiotic would just be considered uh, it's an energy substrate for the microbes in our gut. So when I say gut um, microbiome. Uh, versus gut microbiota. So the microbiota, that's the actual organisms, and the microbiome is, is the, it's the organisms and all of their genetic material. So the gut microbiota is comprised primarily of bacteria, uh, but there are also uh, archaea, there are fungi in there, um, yeast is, is one that we commonly hear about, it's not a, not a, not a bad guy, uh, and we also have viruses and bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria. And so uh, we can provide those bacteria with uh, nutrients that helps them to, to thrive. They need energy just like we do. And what's difficult for those little guys is that um, you know, they uh, inhabit the entire length of our digestive tract. They're more, uh, much more heavily populated in the large intestine. But by the time our, our foodstuffs reach the large intestine, they're really just getting our leftovers. So they get the things that are indigestible to humans. 
And uh, for the purposes of, of prebiotics, we're really talking about mostly indigestible um, uh, carbohydrates. So it can be fibers and then also resistant starches. And there are also some sugars, some simple sugars that might reach the large intestine if we can't take them up very well, if we can't absorb them. So things like uh, fructose isn't super well absorbed in our small intestine, so that might reach the large intestine. Um, lactose or milk sugar, if we're lactose intolerant and don't make the lactase enzyme. Sugar alcohols, and then uh, fibers, we have both soluble and insoluble fiber, and then resistant starches, which are... Um, starch that have some different chemical bonds that make them difficult for us to break down. And so those things can be fermented by the bacteria and that results in the production of either gas, which is why we can sometimes get gassy, uh, or short-chain fatty acids. And uh, there's a good deal of evidence to show that uh, at least one of them is, is beneficial for human health and that's butyrate. So the nice thing even is that with probi with excuse me with prebiotics a lot of times people think they have to supplement with them but that's not the case at all. If you're eating fruits, vegetables, uh, whole grains and and pulses, legumes, you are going to be getting uh, plenty of of fiber. You're going to be getting plenty of those prebiotics that will then go on to feed the bacteria in the gut. The, on the other hand, a probiotic is the actual, that's where you're actually ingesting microbes. You may ingest a bacteria. Uh, most commonly, we, we see lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. Um, bacillus are some, some new ones that have uh, emerged in the maybe the last 10 years. It's spore-forming microbe. Um, and then we also have yeast uh, probiotics as well. So um, Saccharomyces is one that's commonly used. As far as whether they are effective, it depends on the strains, that's the subspecies, so it's very, very specific. Uh, it depends on the strain and it depends on what you're trying to use it for. So thus far, it looks like the effects of probiotics are strain specific and they really only help with certain maladies. Uh, so when I say help, I mean that we have consistent reproducible data that shows that they create some positive health outcome and relatively little um, conflicting information that shows that they that they don't help. So S. boulardii is one that is strongly supported in the literature um, and that might help with traveler's diarrhea and antibiotic associated diarrhea. Um, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG seems to help with pediatric diarrhea. There are some multi-strain probiotics uh, that uh, might help that contain both bifido and lacto that might help with some of the uh, symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. But for the most part, uh, because the studies are done in very different ways and in very different populations, it's really hard to say kind of across the board, you know, oh, this is a probiotic that will always work for everyone. It's just not the case. Just like any drug, we have to say like the effects are going to be influenced by a person's microbiota that already exists and to some extent their genetics and their diet. Um, so there's no kitchen sink probiotic that people need to be taking every day. And in some cases, uh, it's, and, and especially in healthy people, um, there's a good deal of evidence that shows that if even if you're taking a probiotic um, and it looks like it's enriched in your feces, it's not indicative of what's going on in your gut. So it means it's going in one end and out the other.
And so that's another big problem with the literature is that when we're talking about the gut microbiome, we're quite often actually talking about the fecal microbiome. We're talking about the microbes that we can uh, identify from someone's poop sample. And it's not uh, indicative of what's going on along the entire length of the GI tract. So if you want some good evidence on, you know, what probiotic you might want to take if you do have some GI distress, I have a couple infographs on my on my Instagram page, and those are based on, on data from the usprobioticguide.com, which is a nice little evidence-based um, consortium, and also um, Cochrane Reviews. So um, I, I would say probably the, the best thing would be like in uh, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, which is something that happens in like premature babies. But um, the other thing is, so so that's one that is pretty much like there's a Cochrane review on that, but the problem is that there are contraindications and risks also to taking probiotics. So it might be contraindicated if a person's taking um, certain cancer drugs. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about doing it after an antibiotic, but that actually might delay reestablishment of the native microbiome. So it's something that I think is we need to be looking at it a little bit more um, skeptically and, um, you know, with some reservations, not assuming that like, oh, because it's natural, it's not going to harm us in any way. Wow. Okay. That's, that was very, very in-depth. And I hope, I hope that <laughs> I, I will, I will put up, I will attach um, Dr. Vendaro's, um Instagram to the, the write-up. So if you guys want to head over, she has amazing infographics up on her page. So you guys can ch- check for where, the kind of different types of micro uh, from pro and prebiotics that you guys can potentially look at and um, but that, that was very very in-depth and i hope you guys took something out of that because i was literally writing it down like a lunatic during that okay. so, so it, was, it was amazing so thank you uh you mentioned about good health like what actually is good health and how do you know if your gut is healthy i mean that's a big thing that people kind of they kind of look for a lot of things to reach for like supplements or probiotics and prebiotics to kind of make their gut healthy but what is a healthy gut i that's the million dollar question um <laughs> you know that that's the problem and i think this is why it's an area with with so much room for marketing unfortunately um you know i think a lot of the fitness industry tries to uh pathologize things that are normal and normalize things that might be a pathology uh you know certainly we see that with with uh, eating behaviors um but we see that with things like gas and bloating and you know not to discount that it can be very uncomfortable to experience those things and certainly you know if you have an extreme change in bowel habits uh, that's something that you want to go, you know, see your, see a gastroenterologist just to make sure that you know nothing is is really um, amiss there. Uh, you know, if you're having really mucusy stools, or you're seeing blood in your stool, you're waking up in the middle of the night to have a bowel movement, or you're having really extreme do- abdominal pain, absolutely go to the doctor. But if you are sometimes getting a little bit bloated and passing wind after eating foods that are high in fiber. That's not abnormal. That doesn't mean that you have bad gut health, um, and and that's there's not really a definition for you know bad gut health either. So when people talk about having a healthy gut, I think they're probably referring to a whole um like it's like an umbrella term that's sort of like saying good weather. You know who? Well, well, that's that's sort of subjective. I mean, what sort of weather is good weather? And then if we have bad gut health, it's sort of like saying bad weather. Well, in the extremes, we can say like, okay, a torrential downpour might be bad weather, but some people like thunderstorms. So maybe like a tornado. Tornadoes really—that's bad weather. It's destructive. You know, that's on an extreme. 
Um, but, you know, w- within the spectrum of things that are sort of normal, like gas and bloating and, and, you know, every once in a while you might have some constipation or every once in a while you might have some loose stools. The fitness industry tries to pathologize that. And they've even tried to apply other things that, that you know, we don't have the, the data to support. Like, you know, oh, if you are having a difficult time losing weight, it's gut health. Or if you are having acne, it's gut health. Um, obviously linking mood to gut health. And, you know, I was just in, um, I, I just went to the, the um, Gut Microbiome for Health World Summit uh, in, uh, in Madrid, and a speaker from Quark came, and I, I'm so upset that I can't remember his name right now, but he's one of the best speakers that I've ever heard, and he talked about some of the red flags in the industry right now. You know, even on the research side of things, we're using terms like dysbiosis, Dysbiosis has become um, synonymous with sort of bad gut health, but dysbiosis is not a meaningful term. It only means altered compared to the controls. It doesn't necessarily mean healthier or, or, or excuse me, uh, sicker or um, you know unhealthy. It's just different from the controls. The problem is that we have an inter-individual variability from one person to the next of about two-thirds. So so about 60 to 65, 70% of the differences in the gut is just explained by you being two different people. We don't really know why it's, well, like what is actually causing that. It's just going to be hugely different between two people. And then there are different methodologies used to identify which microbes are present, which might over or under represent different uh, microbes and, and um, different species. And um, even when we're comparing two different individuals with the same disease, we're not going to see exactly the same profile. So when we talk about good gut health or bad gut health, they're really mostly right now just marketing terms because we aren't able to say, oh, this is the picture of a healthy gut. Like this, these are the microbes that are supposed to be present in this exact relative abundance. There are some microbes that because we're looking not at the strain level, we're looking at the species level or maybe a genus level. Um, For example, Prevotella. Well, we see that that's enriched in athletes and elite marathoners, but it's also enriched in disease states as well. And so we can't say that, you know, at when we're looking at that level of resolution, unless we're looking at the, the species and subspecies level, it's very hard for us to say, oh, this whole group of, of bacteria are always good or always bad. That's just not the case. Uh, and and the other thing is that most of these microbes can't, they're, they're not going to exert potential um, virulence or, or cause a disease unless their numbers get to, you know, a specific amount. Um, and, and then they're not suppressed by others in the community. But, you know, realize that all of these microbes, they're not just interacting with our cells, they're interacting with each other as well. Uh, so it's, it's just so complex. It's an entire ecosystem. It's like we're trying to look into the ocean and say, this is a healthy ocean and this is an unhealthy ocean. And at best we can say like, oh, you know, there's, there's like bleaching of the coral reefs and that's really bad. But as a whole, you know, how do we determine that the whole ocean is healthy or the whole ocean is unhealthy? Um, you know, just by looking at like some specific groups. So that's a long winded answer to say, we don't know what good gut health is because when we're looking at the microbiome, we're looking at something separate from, but interacting with 
the anatomy and the physiology of the gut. And certainly we're able to identify when there's a disease, uh, when there is a human disease of the gastrointestinal tract, we can identify that. And that often correlates with having an altered profile compared to healthy controls. But again, we, we just don't have clinical applications for that. I think that's an amazing answer. I think yeah, I think what you've what the main point that I took out of that was in the fitness industry, we're too quick to put labels on certain things, and I think that oh, yeah. that that's like that's just the, I think that's what the the industry is amazing, but the problem is a lot of it isn't regulated. So there are there are a lot of people putting out particular marketing schemes, which you've spoken about as well, and they're too quick to kind of put quick labels to make a quick book or a quick euro uh, on certain yeah. things. Um, so I'm delighted you've kind of gone through that in, in a lot of detail. And then one of the kind of things that kind of comes up a lot is whether intolerance testing is a is a, a thing in the industry or is it, are they accurate? Or what is the mm. best way, way to test for intolerance intolerances that a lot of people think they have or may have? Yeah, this is a, this is a tricky one again because of nomenclature. So we have, um, so we can test for Oh, well, let me, I guess, give some definitions. So um, sometimes people use the word food sensitivity to mean a tolerance or an allergy. So the, the tests that are often sold are IgG food sensitivity tests. We can test for food allergies. I guess actually a better word would be we can screen for the potential for food allergies. And a food allergy is an immune-mediated response to a food. There are different immune cells that might take part in that. Um, and there are different tests that we can use. They're not really still um, diagnostic unless you want to do like an oral tolerance test, but that can obviously pose a lot of risks. So if you want to get allergy testing done, you'd want to go to uh, an immunologist or an allergist and have that done. Intolerance, a food intolerance occurs when we have the lack of a digestive enzyme to break that food down. And most commonly we talk about lactose intolerance. So lactose is a sugar that's made from two uh, uh, monomers, two, two pieces stuck together. And we have to be able to break that apart. And if we don't have the lactase enzyme, we can't do that. And so it ends up going to uh, our large intestine where it can be fermented and cause gas and bloating and diarrhea. And you can test for lactose intolerance using a breath test, but it's not super accurate and it's not super helpful. And lactose tolerance is actually fairly dynamic and the treatment wouldn't be any different. It would just be like, well, you can't to tolerate a lot of lactose. Like you don't need a test really to do that. Um, and, and then when we're using breath tests for other things like fructose malabsorption, that's really not, um, that's, that's not, uh, beneficial either. Uh, humans, uh, all humans will have a difficult time absorbing fructose at high enough levels because it has to uh, diffuse in th into the intestinal cell. So if it's trying to move into from an area for a low concentration to high concentration, it won't be able to do that. And so it'll just hang out in our lumen and um, can pull in water and cause diarrhea and things like that. So fructose is sort of just universally malabsorbed. When people are talking about a food sensitivity test, those measure uh, the 
the response of an antibody that's uh, known as IgG, and it's actually a t- uh, it's an antibody that is about recognition and tolerance. So you could actually maybe look at that as more of a tolerance test than an, <laughs> they're a, a, a non-sensitivity test. Like your, your body recognizes it, but doesn't necessarily mount an immune response to it. It's not a food sensitivity and it's not a food intolerance. It has nothing to do with the digestive enzymes that you're making. So a food sensitivity test is a really sly marketing ploy because they can say, oh, well, these are you know FDA approved tests, you know, they're done in a lab. And yes, they are measuring the IgG response to foods. The problem is that the IgG response is not telling you anything. It's just telling you that you've eaten these foods before and that your body recognizes that. So um, it's really just a, a money-making scam. And when people then you know, remove those foods, they sometimes will spontaneously lose weight because they've created an energy deficit because now they're eating far a, a lower variety of foods and a lower amount of food. Or maybe just on accident, they removed a food that they may have had um, an allergy to or that they may have had you know, an enzyme-mediated intolerance to, and then they feel better. Or maybe they just removed a bunch of fibrous foods from their diet and so they have less gas and bloating and then they feel better and so um, because of that misinformation and because of the way that it's marketed they think oh this gave me good information and I feel better now so this test works Um, and and it's just in that gray area of like yes it does measure an IgG response that's not false and if you give people enough factual information they will also believe the, the sort of the lies that you're telling them also. Yeah, I think once again, people are kind of looking for those labels to kind of almost kind of put their mind at rest. I know when I was younger and kind of started out on my own journey, I struggled to process cream as my kryptonite. Uh, so oh. I, and like cheese, no, not a chance. But I, as, as, as soon as I stopped eating those because I knew they were my triggers, I lost the weight, as, as, as you mentioned. Like I wasn't going to... Yeah eating them all the time but like it would have been my go-to kind of snack in the evenings and stuff like that and then I was wondering why I was losing weight it was because I had taken out those foods um, but it's, yep. I'm, I'm delighted you've kind of mentioned that as well and it's the same with kind of the celiac stuff as well that a lot of people it's, it's branded as being celiac is being healthier for you but it is some of the some of the, the celiac stuff for the celiac products or the gluten-free products can be a little bit more calorie dense than the, kind of the the, the, the alternative um, oh, yeah. Um, one of the, the big things, and when I was doing MNU with Martin McDonald, one of the big things that kind of fascinated me was was the good overall. It was kind of one of my favorite topics that kind of came up. And the, the one of the big topics was the good, and they kind of call it the second brain. Why do okay. we call it the second brain? And can you kind of explain that statement a little bit more? Yeah, so the gut has sort of its own separate nervous system, the enteric nervous system, and it can act independently from our central nervous system. Um, And I think they probably say that because there are so, so many neurons uh, concentrated in the gut. And when we have like a concentration of neurons, we think of that as, oh, this is another brain. And um, I mean, you could kind of also say that about your heart. (laughs) But um, yeah, but, but, you know, people um, of they attach sort of emotions to the gut. We say like we have a gut feeling or like I felt it in my gut or, you know, I've got like nervous 
guts or something, you know, like we can, we get a sense of our emotions in our abdominal region. And so we sort of attach that. And there certainly is communication. There's bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain, um, largely via the vagus nerve. But what's really interesting is that, again, I think in the fitness industry, we've sort of overstepped, you know, we put the cart before the horse, sort of assuming that the gut causes our moods or, you know, causes our personality. Um, and we base a lot of that on rodent research, which gives us a lot of interesting mechanistic data, but we can't directly extrapolate that to what happens in humans. And uh, we have to be very careful about how we're interpreting human data because it seems that some of the most prominent studies that have come out in the past couple years, um, you know, one specifically on fecal transplant, well, they didn't have a control group. So, you know, we have to be, I think, really, really cautious about how we're interpreting uh, some of the data on on mood and the gut. Um, and, the, and the other thing is that, you know, we kind of come up with these logical fallacies, I guess. And the big one would be on gut-derived serotonin. So uh, serotonin is produced in the gut, and it's a discrete separate pool from the serotonin that's produced in the brain. The gut-derived serotonin regulates gastric motility, but it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And there's not a great deal of uh, vagus nerve innervation in the large intestine where we would really see most of the serotonin being produced because that's where most of the microbes are. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there from you know what is actually happening um, in in the literature in the research world and um, you know what's happening sort of on the internet. I think that was one of the the most common memes that I've seen. Oh, the gut you know produces serotonin, so it affects mood. Well, no, not exactly. Um, you know, can it potentially have a, an effect on mood and personality? It's very likely um, because those microbes are producing a number of, of neurotransmitters and some of them, you know, might or, or, or precursors can cross the blood brain barrier. Uh, and there's certainly uh, um, evidence in the animal world that uh, gut microbiomes regulate uh, social behavior and mating behavior. But, you know, humans have this really cool frontal lobe that, that other organisms don't have. And so we have things like conscience, conscience, Oh, I can't say conscientiousness and, and, you know, forethought and we can imagine things and whatnot. So I don't think we can really simplify ourselves to the level of a mouse and say, oh, my gut microbiome is regulating everything that I say and do and think and feel. That's really interesting because I think there are, there is a lot of literature saying that it like it does impact your, your mood, but you're saying it is quite likely to impact your mood, but it isn't definitive. It's like everything. It's it's it, it depends. It seems to be the an answer which like like yourself, like doctors and stuff like it, but there is no definitive in the world of research. And I think that's too too many people are too quick to give definitives rather than kind of looking at it from both sides. You can't be an expert on anything if you can't argue both sides, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, vegan diets are one of these, are, are, are massive at the minute. And I think after that documentary on Netflix, which hurt my head, um, <laughs> I didn't even finish it. I stopped watching it after they started talking about men's penises and, ve- and vegan diets. Oh. I didn't. I haven't even finished it. Um, <gasps> is there any benefit of the... on? I've had a few vegans on the podcast before, so I've nothing against vegans before people start messaging me. Is there any benefit of the vegan diet on the gut microbiome? Uh, It doesn't look like vegan diets specifically confer additional benefit compared to vegetarian or omnivorous. The caveat to that would be it doesn't have to necessarily be vegan to be high in plant matter. 
So if we're comparing a vegan diet that is very high in, in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, and legumes, and they're getting, you know, a, a large amount of fiber that's going to be available for those uh, bacteria in, in the large intestines, or we're getting, you know, a high, sort of a high prebiotic fiber load, along with the other potentially beneficial compounds in plants. And we compare that to, you know, even a vegetarian diet where the person's just like not eating any fiber and, you know, maybe they're eating like a lot of refined carbohydrates and things like that because like there are plenty of foods that are not nutritionally dense but happen to be vegetarian or vegan. Then it would be, oh, well, the vegan diet looks so much better or, you know, compare a vegan diet to the standard American diet. Well, now you're not really comparing veganism to the standard American diet. You're comparing, you know, what's the fiber content of these two diets. So if a person wants to eat an omnivorous diet or a vegetarian diet, um, that doesn't look like there's uh, much of a difference in terms of the uh, microbial profiles uh, between groups. Part of that is because it's so overshadowed by differences between individuals. So in some studies, you'll see that vegans have lower bacteroides, and then in other studies, they have higher bacteroides. And part of that is, is that the microbiome is also shaped by our environment. And so you know, if you take a vegan who lives in the U.S. versus a vegan who lives in South Africa, uh, their location is going to have an effect. Their age will have an effect. Their gender will have an effect. So what we have to do then, which is very difficult, is to get you know, a bunch of individuals of pretty much the same age and the same gender and the same physical activity levels uh, living in the same environment, and, and then we compare you know, a fiber-matched vegan diet versus a fiber-matched omnivorous diet, and everything's the same about that diet, it just except that the vegans are only eating uh, plant matter and then the omniv omnivores are getting some of their protein from animal foods. And, um, that just <laughs> hasn't been done yet. And so, um, you know, we'd have to do that reproducibly in, in places all over the world and then compare all of those studies to come up with that position stand. And so thus far, it's just like, well, you know, if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and things like that, um, whether or not you add some animal products to that doesn't seem to make a big difference. And in fact, you know, when we're looking at things like dairy, um, that might have some potential benefit. You know, we can look at sort of specific, if we want to get a little bit more granular and, you know, not just look at diets as a whole, but like specific components. It looks like whey protein might be a little bit bifidogenic and so is pea protein and so is coffee a little bit. Um, you know, so, so it's like trying to take the snapshot photo of like, is a vegan diet better? Well, it depends on how you're doing that vegan diet, and it depends on what you're comparing it to and how you're doing that other diet. So I usually just encourage people to eat a wide variety of fibrous foods, and then if they want to, they can add animal protein, but they don't have to because it's not going to be deleterious really either way. That's really interesting. I think that's going to help a lot of kind of the vegan. I have a few vegan clients, and I've had a few people on who have been vegan as well. So I think that's that's... That's a very a really really helpful answer. Um, IBSD and IBSC are two things that are out there an awful lot at the minute. Um, is there anything that you can change in your diet to kind of like? Can you explain what IBSD is and what the difference is between IBSC? And is there anything you can change in your diet to kind of help or ease the symptoms of the of of either or? Yeah, so these are, this is irritable bowel syndrome. D is, is diarrhea predominant and C is constipation dominant. Um, there's also M, which is mixed, so you're kind of alternating between constipation and diarrhea. 
Um, this is something that your doctor usually, you know, you'd want to visit your doctor to, to ask them about it, and they will generally rule out other potential um, diseases, and this is considered to be um, a functional one because everything looks normal, so you don't have, you know, damage to the anatomical structures, but the physiology of the GI tract is altered in some way that um, the motility or movement is dysregulated and there's some hyper uh, visceral hypersensitivity so you get increased perceptions of pain um, and you may get you know frequent constipation or frequent diarrhea um, and gas and bloating that might come along with those as well so um, there are some dietary interventions. I mean, again, this is something that is going to be pretty individual. Uh, and it also, you know, lifestyle plays a role as well. So um, exercise can, can exacerbate symptoms, um, stress, uh, the use of caffeine. So not just coffee, but other caffeine-containing items as well. Those can all play a role. Um, so usually when I'm working with folks, we're trying to, you know, we look at lifestyle as well, even sleep habits. Um, can they make time to do some, some mindfulness exercises, some yoga, even CBT have all been, um, shown to be beneficial. Does not appear to be super helpful to take prebiotics, um, because prebiotics can cause some gas and, and bloating, uh, and diarrhea. So we don't necessarily want to add more than what we would have in a normal diet. As far as IBS-C, it looks like psyllium husk is one of, it's one fiber supplement that does seem to be beneficial for folks with IBS-C. Um, and with IBS-D, the low FODMAP diet, so that is a, a process of elimination, testing, and reintroduction that reduces and then reintroduces highly fermentable carbohydrates and allows an individual to sort of determine their personal threshold for those. And that works for about 40% of folks with IBSD to help reduce the severity of their symptoms. Uh, but, you know, th even things like trying to, to limit sugar alcohols um, and, uh, you know, limit caffeine intake uh, before doing intense exercise, I recommend, you know, steering clear of the three Fs, um, fat, fructose, and fiber, because those can cause some GI distress as well. That's amazing. So thank you so much for that. If there was one biggest myth that you would try and get rid of in the industry, what would it be about good health? Like if biggest myths around good health, what would be the one that you would try to go to and try and get rid of that's out there? Because there, are, there is a lot of BS that's out in the industry, whether it's good yeah. health or anything. Um, if there was one kind of the biggest myths that you would try to try to get rid of or try to kind of say, no, that's actually a complete and utter bullshit what would you kind of what would be the one to go to for you i would say the myth of the gut reset like that doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all and i have seen practitioners use this word and ask multiple times what do you mean by a reset like what are you resetting are you what is it the nervous system are you like clearing out all of the microbes and putting in new ones like are you scraping off the mucus layer of the intestines and putting down new like what what is being reset here it makes absolutely no sense like in most cases if you're like oh we're gonna do a heart reset people would be like no no or a brain reset absolutely not but like gut reset people are like yeah get me on board with that like what the hell does that mean that's and that that yeah that's that's bonkers and i think people are as you said are still going to go for those labels and stuff like that in relation to kind of the lactose intolerance just kind of the last question because i know you have other uh calls and stuff like this after i'm very lucky to have you on uh with regarding lactose intolerance 
Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned whey protein and kind of, is there any other substitute you can take if whey protein isn't, you can't really process the kind of whey protein is kind of whey isolated of kind of a better option for you or is there any other one that you kind of kind of recommend yeah whey protein isolate would absolutely work because that's going to have uh pretty much no lactose in it you know what's really interesting is that even though i mean people really shit on like sorry if i hope i can swear you can hurt Um, swear work away All right, all right, yeah. Uh, people really shit on like the the veggie based proteins, and so you know, according to the PDCAAS score, it's a lower quality protein, meaning it's less um, bioavailable, it's less, less readily digestible, and you know, maybe not as high of um, a, a, a essential amino acid content, and maybe not as high in leucine. But when you actually look into the literature and you look at these studies comparing whey protein isolate versus pea protein or versus like a rice hemp blend or something what do we really care about do we really care about you know oh amino acid appearance in the blood or do you care about what are the outcomes in those individuals do they have similar levels of performance of recovery of muscle protein synthesis i would argue that that's probably more important than just markers of what might be um, you know, amino acid uptake or muscle protein synthesis. And when we look at those outcomes, it's all comparable. There's no significant differences. So if you wanted to do, you know, and sometimes you just need to take a little bit more of the pea protein or of the um, veggie protein blend. But if you're getting a blend, they're usually going to be using, you know, complementary protein sources. Uh, and so you'd get the full spectrum of amino acids. But yeah, if you're if you're having a difficult time with whey protein even whey protein isolate, then try a pea protein or try, you know, a veggie blend. Just keep your eyes peeled because a lot of those vegan and vegetarian protein powders um, contain a chicory root, which is an inulin, and that causes a lot of gas and bloating. So um, that's just one thing to look out for. But, you know, I, I personally use pea protein um, in, like, cooking and baking and things like that. It's not super tasty, unflavored on its own, but it's very um, affordable and, you know, for, for – my purposes, like I'm omnivorous already, so I'm not super concerned about you know. Oh, I have to have a whey protein isolate. I think the, from from working with vegans um, and from working with people that want to take the pea protein, I think the biggest concern for them is the taste. Um, I think yeah. <laughs> once you find the one that works for you, it's like anything you're going to stick to it. Is there a particular is there a particular brand that you would kind of use yourself or is there a particular brand that you kind of recommend to kind of get and maybe available over here it may not be oh you know what i i am hardcore i'm kidding not really i <laughs> get unflavored i just get unflavored pea protein um in bulk and so i like literally i'll like put it in my oatmeal or you know in baked goods you can actually pretty much substitute flour with pea protein like it's it just has that kind of texture um and it does not taste good so do not get plain pea protein and expect it to dissolve well or taste good it does not but i will say um i've had i think vega is a brand that does like vegan products and some of those don't contain chicory root so i've had that but a lot of them you know they also use like stevia and i do not like the taste of stevia so i'm probably like one of the worst people to ask about for anything with flavor because I'm just like, I'd rather have some weird bland pea protein than anything with stevia in it. Plain and simple is what works for you. So that if yeah. perfect. Um, so 
what's coming up next for you Dr. Vanera? I know you're doing I think this has been recorded on the 31st of March you're doing an event on I think it's Saturday the fourth it's, of, yeah it's Saturday uh, yeah, with, it's yeah I've had a few I've had a lot of the, the guests on before like um, Amelia Dr. Mike um, so I've had a lot of those guests on before so can you kind of talk about that like what's going on it's an amazing idea by Simon Yes, I was so excited by this. Um, so he basically, he reached out to me and then I said I wanted to get my colleague Shannon on board. She and I are writing the Bridge the Gap series. We've got two articles out now and we are putting, we're, we're finalizing our third. We're going to have four in total. Um, so when when we were coming up with ideas for this, we were like, you know, I, he wanted to talk about gut microbiome stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we could talk about gut health, but, you know, I really want to talk also about what we're doing with this Bridge the Gap series, which is where we're focusing really heavily on the psychology of, of learning and behavior change and motivation um, to help folks make changes that actually last and that are aligned with their values. And I thought, well, you know, we could do maybe like split this 50-50 and what Shannon and I talk about is sort of change from the inside out. And I was like, well, this is perfect. So it'll be a little bit, you know, we can talk about the gut health stuff, but we're also going to talk about other forms of, in, of internal change. Because what I found is that there are so many parallels between, you know, the sort of gut health, like um, dogma, I guess, and, and what kind of can cause problems in the fitness industry for people who are pursuing a diet, you know, this idea of something about you is broken and this is what you need to do to fix it. And so it's going to be a little, um, kind of combo discussion on those things. And I'm super excited for it. It's, it's, it's an amazing idea. And the, the guests on it for the fitness people, I think it's like, I think it's like Mardi Gras or one of those things for fitness people. It's an amazing lineup that he's managed to get, and I'm, I'm really excited. I've, I've registered for myself yesterday, um, so I'm really, really excited to kind of have a look at it over the weekend and stuff like that. Um, have you got any other talks kind of coming over here, over in Europe or anything like that, when the whole this whole COVID thing kind of goes away? <laughs> um, no, you know what? Everything pretty much had to be put on hold until 2021. Oh, wow. There are probably going to be a couple um, online things that are going to come out. Um, so that's going to be, I would say, take a, like keep your eyes peeled on my Instagram for in the next couple weeks that I know there's going to be a couple talks coming out. And then, um, you know, we're kind of discussing um, amongst various groups what do we want to do, you know, for things that were postponed do we want to do things online and whatnot but I think my next uh the next seminar that I will be attending will be the one in in I'm not speaking at it but just attending will be ISSN in Texas in like October that's pretty much what I've I've deemed like that might be far enough out you know to to be safe but um yeah I think it'll be just more doing things online um maybe they'll put out some more ig lives and shannon and i have some things in the works so just keep your eyes peeled we'll we'll be putting things on the internet and where can people find out about more information about yourself and your services dr venero yeah they can find me on facebook and instagram at vitamin phd i also have a website vitamin phd nutrition.com uh they can reach out to me uh via those avenues I answer every DM and I will keep doing that until it's just impossible for me uh, if they're interested in um, my VPHD telehealth services 
And if they want to work via email using uh, more of a, a template approach to nutrition, then they can uh, hit me up at uh, renaissanceperiodization.com. They can just Google RP Strength and my name, Gabrielle Fondero, and they'll find me. That's amazing. I'm going to put all that information into the write-up. So if people want to contact you, they can just click on the link simply and then they can pop you messages via the website or they can contact you and pop you a DM um, via Instagram Perfect. as well. So Dr. Dr. Fundara, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's a weird time and it's I don't even know what time it is over your way. Dr. Fundara is all the way over in the States. Um, I'm very grateful for giving up her time. She has to go on to another podcast now as well. So I'm very grateful for giving up your time. Hope you stay safe in this weird situation that's kind of going on. Um, and thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you too. Thank you so much for having me. If you guys have enjoyed that episode at all, please do go over and tag myself and Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro up on your story. It's an incredible episode. Uh, I know some of it might be very, very, very technical, um, but then the kind of the simple solutions and simple answers at the very, very end. So hopefully you've enjoyed it with the intolerance testing, gut access and second brain and probiotics and prebiotics, lactose intolerance, vegans and the biggest myths and stuff like that, guys. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. So please do kind of tag uh, the two of us in your story if you enjoy it. I'll talk to you very soon, guys.